You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, I'll be talking to London editor Dennis Staunton about Brexit. How does the Scottish referendum called by the SNP affect the process? And when does Mrs May trigger Article 50? And what happens then? In Berlin, Derek Scully has been watching the war of words between Turkey's President Erdogan and both the German and Dutch governments. And Asia correspondent Clifford Coonan will be talking about the ousting last week of South Korea's president on corruption charges. Dennis Staunton, Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has demanded another referendum on independence. Timed, she hopes, at the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019. It's not altogether a surprise. She'd been warning that London's refusal to consider making a special case uh, for Scotland in the Brexit talks would force her hand. But does London have, have any choice but to grant her wish? Well, it probably has to say that if the Scottish Parliament next week votes in favour of having a second referendum, that uh, that they can have a second referendum. But the question is really about the timing. As you say, uh, Nicola Sturgeon would like to have it between uh, the autumn of 2018 and the spring of 2019, which would be, uh, they think uh, we should have a clear view of what the final Brexit deal is going to be at that stage. But Britain wouldn't actually have left the uh, European Union yet. And uh, what uh, the Conservatives are likely to say in uh, Westminster is that uh, uh, that you know it's impossible to have a referendum before Britain leaves the European Union. Uh, Theresa May thinks that that would put uh, the Scottish National Party at a disadvantage because they could then make the argument, the Conservatives could make the argument that uh, not only by leaving the United, United Kingdom would they be leaving one union, but Scotland would also be out of the European Union. Whereas uh, what Nicola Sturgeon wants to argue is that she can in some way maintain Scotland's relationship with the European Union uh, as an independent country, even after the UK leaves. Yes, there's been some comment in in, in Brussels uh, in the last couple of days suggesting that Scotland, if it does uh, leave the UK, will have to reapply anyway uh, for membership of the Union. Yes, this is what uh, José Manuel Barroso, the former uh, European Commission president, said during the last Scottish referendum in uh, 2014. And he, he said not only would they have to reapply, but they'd have to kind of join the queue along with all the uh, other current accession states. And uh, there, this could possibly be finessed. But I think also that uh, once the referendum campaign gets underway, if indeed it does, that Nicola Sturgeon will probably also finesse her argument. And so... Uh, because quite a lot of people who voted in favour of uh, Scottish independence also voted to leave the European Union. Uh, she, she may suggest that uh, you know, they want to rejoin the European Union. They may also suggest that as an interim step, they might want to, for example, join the uh, European economic area, like uh, a country like Norway, which is part of the single market but is not uh, within the European Union. So I think that uh, the, the technical issue of whether Scotland is going to be able to uh, rejoin the European Union uh, without reapplying is, uh, is something that's possibly up in the air. And there are different noises coming out of Brussels. The Commission did say uh, on Monday, its initial reaction was that the Barroso Doctrine, as it's now called, uh, that that remains in force. But the Parliament, the European Parliament's uh, Brexit negotiator, Guy Verhofstadt, former Belgian Prime Minister, he has suggested that, in fact, uh, there may be some way around that. So, so I think that one is up in the air for now. She's played quite a clever tactical game um, and 
the Tories are clearly upset uh, by her timing. Um, May says the worst possible timing. The truth is, though, the situation isn't as propitious for uh, the Scottish nationalists to to uh, fight a referendum campaign. The price of oil, in particular, has has made Scottish independence economically a much more uh, dubious concept. Um, but the polls are are, are running fifty fifty at the moment. Yes, it's it's uh, the economic conditions are worse because, as you say, about uh, of the oil price. And uh, but on the other hand, the polls uh, show that not only have the 45 percent who voted in favour of independence in 2014 has the independence vote held there, but it seems to have increased by a couple of points. Uh, and if you recall, at the beginning of the uh, Scottish independence referendum campaign, support for independence was only at 27 percent. So what I think the Scottish nationalists believe is that the argument uh, in the campaign is not going to be based solely on economics, just as the argument over Brexit wasn't, but actually it will be also a kind of an emotional narrative. And uh, I, so, I, so I think they feel confident enough that they are in with a shout and that they're starting from a very good baseline with somewhere uh, around 47 or 48 percent of Scots now saying that they would vote for independence. Now, May has said that she will definitely trigger uh, Article 50 before the end of the month, uh, avoiding both the Dutch election and, and the Rome celebrations of 60 years of the European Union. But what happens then? It's a very complicated uh, multi-track process. Yes, what happens is that uh, Theresa May sends a letter to Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, uh, notifying him of Britain's intention to withdraw or, from the European Union. Uh, we don't know yet what form that letter will take, how detailed it will be in terms of what she'd like to get from the negotiations. But we, what we do know is that within 48 hours, the European Council will respond with draft negotiating guidelines. And these guidelines will then go to uh, the EU leaders at a summit uh, probably about four weeks later, and they'll then uh, decide whether to accept those or not. Now, what the guidelines, uh, and they're at a very advanced stage of drafting now, I understand that they're currently running at about 10 pages. And so what they'll do is that they will describe, first of all, uh, what uh, the European Union wants in terms of the sequencing of the negotiations. And that means that uh, so uh, you know, the Article 50 process is in a way two processes. One is about uh, the simple business of leaving the European Union. And the other then is about arrangements for the future relationship between Britain and the European Union after Britain leaves. What so the Europeans would like the is to... Talks. The divorce talks, exactly. The Europeans would like to start with the divorce talks. And they've identified a few issues. One is how much money Britain is going to have to pay when it leaves. And this is about commitments they've already made to some spending programs, some of which run to 2023, some just run until about 2020. Uh, also, uh, the cost of paying for pensions for uh, EU officials, including obviously British uh, people working in the European institutions, and uh, and and very and then the the issue of whether Britain wants to remain part of certain EU programs, like say the Erasmus program, and so what the uh, the European Union is hoping to do is is not actually just to slap a, a kind of a bar bill on the table immediately at the start of negotiations, which they know could be uh, extremely disruptive and very very controversial in Britain. What they instead want to do is to agree with the British on some pathway to find an agreement on the methodology for working out what this is. So what they'll probably do is to work out just what exactly they're talking about, 
how the sum ought to be uh, worked out. And then they leave that. They'll just park that for, uh, for some months. The other issue, another issue they want to talk about is the rights of EU nationals currently living in Britain and the rights of British nationals currently living in the European Union and some kind of reciprocal deal to protect both of those. They want to talk about the, uh, the citing of various uh, EU bodies, which are now in Britain, and the future of some of those. And then the fourth issue that, they, uh, that will, will almost certainly appear in those guidelines is the issue of Ireland, uh, the common travel area, the future of the border, and the, uh, and the legacy of the peace process. Michel Barnier, who's the uh, chief negotiator on behalf of the Commission, uh, he's uh, got a, a personal commitment to the uh, Northern Ireland peace process. And the Irish government has done a, a very successful lobbying operation around Europe to persuade other EU member states that actually Ireland is unusually exposed to, uh, to Brexit. And so that some of the issues around Ireland's relationship and future relationship with Britain should be organized early on. So once uh, they uh, they start this process of dealing with uh, all of these kind of divorce issues, uh, that will probably take them up until the end of 2017. And then what they would like to do, if this all goes well, is they then will start a parallel track of some of these being uh, negotiated in technical uh, groups with the European Commission. And at the same time, uh, Britain and the European Union start to talk about their future relationship. And that would be to sketch out uh, the kind of the outline of what kind of future trading relationship they would like to have and issues like, for example, Britain's relationship with the EU customs union. And that obviously is a very important thing where Ireland is concerned. So that uh, what Britain would like would be to have uh, everything, you know, both the future relationship and the divorce uh, arrangements to be discussed simultaneously. That probably won't happen, but they will start simultaneous negotiations if it all goes well, probably at the, around the beginning of 2018. And that well, those negotiations will run probably until about October of 2018. They have to really sort things out by then because uh, the, uh, whatever the final deal is, it has to be ratified by the European Parliament. And then it's decided uh, within the European Council by a qualified majority. But some member states will require a ratification of the deal uh, in their own national parliaments before they actually take a vote in the European Council. And so, uh, so the, the shape of the deal ought to be known towards the end of 2018 and then uh, with a view to Britain actually leaving in March 2019. And in terms of the British approving a deal, uh, we now know uh, pretty much that Theresa May will just allow the Commons a yes-no vote on, on, on the deal with no, with no amendments possible. Isn't that right? Yes, uh, the House of Commons uh, on uh, Monday voted itself out of the right to have a meaningful vote on uh, the final deal. And so they'll have uh, they'll have a vote, but uh, it will be a choice between accepting the deal that uh, Theresa May has agreed or leaving the European Union with no deal whatsoever and just crashing out of, uh, of membership of the European Union. And, and finally, briefly, can I just ask you who will actually be sitting down at, at the, the table opposite each other? Well, the, uh, the, the, the main players will be uh, David Davis, who's the, uh, the British Secretary for Exiting the European Union, the Brexit Secretary. He'll be leading the negotiations uh, for Britain. And Michel Barnier will be leading the negotiations for the uh, European Union. Now, the way the European Union has worked it is that the European Commission will conduct the negotiations, but under the guidance of the European Council, uh, where the EU leaders meet. So uh, although Michel Barnier will be 
conducting the negotiations, he'll have to report back to uh, the European uh, Council uh, regularly, and they can actually tweak and adjust the negotiating guidelines. Thank you very much indeed. After the break, Derek Scully on the war of words between Turkey's president and the Dutch and German governments. Hi, I'm Cathy Sheridan, the host of the award-winning women's podcast. It's a twice-weekly look at the world from a female perspective, full of feminism, humour, politics, sex, storytelling, relationships and more. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. You can find us on irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. The war of words between Turkey's President Erdogan and the Dutch and German governments, ostensibly about the right of Turkish ministers to campaign and speak in both countries, has more to do with mobilising voters at home in each case. In the Dutch case, there's an election on Wednesday. In Turkey, a referendum next month, expanding the power of the president. But the Dutch are not on their own. There's a serious escalation in the dispute in, in Germany overnight. Yes, Paddy. Um, President Erdogan was on Turkish television yesterday evening um, in a news programme in which he turned directly addressed, to address the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. And he said, um, according to reports, Dear Madam Merkel, you support terrorists. Why are you hiding terrorists in your country? Why are you doing nothing? And he said that the, Turkey had provided 4,500 uh, inf- pieces of information to Germany on terror suspects uh, to which Germany had not reacted. Now, he seems to have been referring to um, one of two things. One is most likely uh, the outlawed um, PKK, the Kurdish um, group, which is viewed by uh, Turkey as a terrorist organization and in Europe too. But Turkey has always accused Europe of taking a much softer line than it would like on this. And um, Germany has said this is absolutely... Uh, ridiculous, um, but they've tried to call out uh, Mr. Erdogan. The Merkel spokesman today said the accusations are obvious. The accusations that Merkel supports terrorists are obviously absurd, and he said that the Chancellor does not intend to participate in a provocation contest. So um, this is their efforts to try and comment on what is happening as opposed to react to what's happening. Um, you remember that the Dutch seem to have reacted to uh, the provocations from Turkey with an election on there. Uh, it's understandable, I suppose, some people would say, because uh, the, the Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, needs to show himself to be the tough the tough uh, man against um, threats from Turkey or elsewhere and doesn't want to be seen to be soft on anything from uh, President Erdogan or Islamist terrorism or anything like that. Angela Merkel is, has an election in six months' time, so she still has a slight window of opportunity to act here. But um, it's, it's really getting quite difficult for her because over the last two weeks, we've had all sorts of, of, of um, almost daily provocations from uh, Turkey with... Um, President Erdogan talking about Nazi met to ban um, Turkish ministers from speaking ahead of uh, the April 16th referendum. And uh, the Germans have said this is ridiculous. They say we're not terribly thrilled uh, about the referendum that's coming up. Uh, that will give President Erdogan more powers at the expense of Parliament and the judiciary, say critics. Um, but they said we're, we're, we're happy to let people talk once they play um, by the rules and um, so to call to talk about Nazi methods uh, is almost it, it discredits itself is what Merkel has said but what we're seeing is um, a, a series of provocations and this is going to continue we're 
we've still got a few weeks until the referendum. And today, Turkey has announced there's going to be 15 more referendum rallies in the coming weeks, uh, mostly in Western Germany and in Berlin. And perhaps even President Erdogan will come. So um, things are probably going to get even tougher, even more heated uh, in this relationship uh, between Turkey and Western Europe. Well, and, and the use of the Nazi uh, insult is particularly toxic, but both in, in Germany and in uh, Holland. Indeed. I mean, um, Angela Merkel said first regarding uh, Nazi comparisons in Germany, she said Germany will never allow such comparisons because they trivialise the Nazi terror and the um, misery that they brought to Europe. And then yesterday, she actually stood up for um, the Netherlands. Um, the Netherlands, as you know, uh, prevented one minister from arriving in Turkey and the other from entering the consulate and has caused a huge, um, basically a freezing of uh, diplomatic relations with Turkey. And Angela Merkel stepped into that row and she said, considering the, the, the misery and the suffering that the Netherlands experienced under the Nazis, to accuse them of Nazi methods is is also, it, it sort of disqualifies itself. So we have uh, Mr. Erdogan provoking and trying to get a rise out of Western European leaders. He appears to have succeeded to some extent um, in the heat of the Dutch election campaign. But uh, Merkel and her people are remaining calm and they're saying we will knock back the um, factual issues, but we're not getting into, a, a, as, as Merkel's spokesperson said, we're not going to get into a provocation contest. The dispute has spread too. I mean, there are indications of support for the Germans and the, the Dutch from Sweden, from Austria, from, from France. And the European Union has itself has issued a statement warning uh, the Turks about their constitutional referendum. The Venice Commission of the Council of Europe has issued a statement saying that the, the uh, Turkey is heading towards one party, uh, one man autocratic uh, rule. This is the underlying subtext of the whole thing, of course, the, the, the push by Erdogan to entrench his, his powers. Yes, and this is the this is the dilemma that Angela Merkel faces. Um, on the one hand, it's illegal in Germany to advertise or promote anything that would lead to the effective abolition of the democratic order, as we know it, the separation of powers, the free judiciary, and and so on. Um, but um, critics of Turkey are saying that's exactly what these Turkish politicians are doing to come here. And the question is, how much, um, how far can they go before Germany is actually obliged to intervene? Last week, we had an inter interesting constitutional court ruling and it made clear there was some there was some dis disagreement over whether or not Berlin could intervene in such cases. Until until last week, Berlin had said, "Well, if if, if a Turkish politician wants to come and speak in a regional town hall, that's up for the regional town hall to decide whether or not they will uh, be allowed to speak." And in two cases, speeches were cancelled, and the local authorities said, "This is because we didn't know there was a there was a minister coming. We were told it was a." a book launch or a music concert. We didn't know it was a political event. We didn't know this was probably going to attract thousands of people. And from a safety perspective, we were not comfortable having such an event. So that's why they say they cancelled their event. But on a legal basis, uh, there wasn't, it wasn't clear whether or not Germany can ban and whether central government in Berlin can ban such events. Now, last week, the German Constitutional Court said yes. Um, representative of foreign governments do not have an automatic right to speak here. So technically, legally, on a narrow legal basis, Basis. 
of Berlin would be entitled to turn them away. And the fact that Berlin hasn't um, has been criticised in some quarters, but applauded in others, saying that, look, you cannot, this is the central dilemma. Can you uh, allow somebody to come here and, and advertise or promote the abolition of the rule of law? Or if you intervene and prevent that, are you not hindering freedom of speech, which they can then use against you? So that is the dilemma in which uh, Angela Merkel finds herself. And we've got uh, we've got several weeks to go until uh, basically a month more of this before the um, before the April 16th referendum. And there was another court ruling uh, this morning as a European Court of Justice. Yes, the European Court of Justice, um, there was a ruling on whether or not a, a woman was entitled to wear a headscarf at work. And the court said no. Uh, it was sort of a no, but. Um, and they said if the if the workplace has no religious symbols whatsoever and deliberately avoids all sorts of religious symbols, then an employer is entitled uh, to um, to fire somebody if they're wearing a headscarf in the workplace. Um, but there are several um, provisos in that, and we're just studying the first um, the first ruling here. But if I would be very surprised if Mr. Erdogan didn't pounce on that as further proof, as he believes it, that um, Western Europe is going through a, an anti-Muslim and Islamophobic phase that is, as he views it, um, similar to um, anti-Semitic wave in the 1930s. And um, that will then put European leaders on the back foot to prove that that isn't the case. All grist to his domestic campaign. Thank you very much, Derek. And to our Asia correspondent, currently in Vietnam, Clifford Coonan. Clifford, the ousting last week in South Korea of President Park Geun-hee was pretty remarkable. Parliament, mass demonstrations, news media and the courts all in lockstep. And she was the first South Korean leader to be forced out of office in response to popular pressure since 1960. Um, the charges were of corruption involving an old friend, Choi Soon-sil. What have they been up to? I think in South Korea at the moment there's a certain sense of resignation about this because um, since her father, her father um, was, was, was president, he was assassinated in 1979, Pretty much every president or their family members have been accused of corruption or spent time in prison for corruption. So um, what has basically happened now is that she's joined this list, even though she was presenting herself as a new broom when she came in. Um, now she's been formally removed from office after the Constitutional Court um, decided to uphold the Parliament's decision to impeach her. And um, there's a lot of disappointment, too. She was the first woman to lead South Korea. Um, and she's also now, as you say, the first the first democratically elected leader to be ousted. Particularly, though, uh, problematic has been her relationship with this old friend Choi Soon Sil. Um, she she's yeah. a strange figure. Yeah, this is it's it's a very weird story. I mean, it's full of all these kind of surreal elements. I mean, um, um, her her best friend uh, was was uh, basically this is her best friend. She was her spiritual advisor who believed that she could talk to her her um, assassinated mother. And then over the years, she sort of developed this huge amount of influence. And she uh, apparently um, used this influence to fund her daughters. Uh, this is Choi Soon-sil, uh, to fund her daughter's equestrian habit or ambitions, where basically she wanted to compete for South Korea in, in the equestrian um, in Olympic Games. And... Um, so it, it just got murkier and murkier and they put pressure on various conglomerates, including Samsung, who are in big trouble now um, over this, um, but also a lot of the other big ones, including Lotta, to get money towards this fund that was used to, to fund things like um, 
like the equestrian ambitions of the of Choi Sun Sil's daughter. But we've also seen weird stories emerge that uh, over the uh, Sewol ferry disaster that she didn't show up for about seven hours um, after the event. And and then when she did, her hair had been specially distressed to make her look like she had been, you know, worried about what had happened. And this went down really badly. And this is probably one of the main reasons she's in such trouble. Her handling of that wasn't seen as good. There was also allegations that she bought a huge quantity of Viagra, the erectile dysfunction drug, um, on, on government money for altitude sickness before a trip to uh, to Africa. So there's been all these kind of strange elements to the story, and together they've all added up to to paint a, a very grim picture of of what's going on in uh, in Korea because people don't really know who's going to replace her. I mean, the liberals would probably do well, but she was a, a strong figure and a popular figure originally. But she was re- she was removed um, from office and grudgingly left the the presidential uh, palace with her spokeswoman muttering that, that the truth would come out still. So she's not accepted the charges. Yeah. And and the uh, one of the leading business people in, in South Korea, the head of Samsung, he's facing charges now too. This is what people are now worried about, is that things like Samsung and Lotte and the other big Chebol, these industrial uh, conglomerates that kind of run... Korea in many ways, or they're certainly very powerful in how the um, in how the country works. They're also facing facing difficulties now because they contributed to this. She is basically accused of soliciting bribes uh, over the merger of two Samsung units two years ago. This relates to succession issue in 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 the in Samsung, which is the largest of these chaebols. The thing is that the chaebols are incredibly important in 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 Korea, given that they were. Um, the, after the 90, after the Korean War in 1953, the Chaebols and and the government got together and said we will rebuild the country and there's a social contract, um, which everyone has kind of adhered to, which means that Korea is now the 12th richest country in the world. It's a huge success story. Uh, South Korea is a huge success story, but it's based on the social contract and this is a sign that the the Chaebols uh, are not playing ball with this social contract and that has potentially disastrous repercussions for Korea because for South Korea because it uh, it means that um, that the foundations of the state may also be corrupt now there will be presidential elections held in 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 May and uh, the 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 Democratic Party is likely to win the election how does that represent a, a shift in policy will we see um, specifically towards North Korea, is is it going to um, shift dramatically? Well, the thing that everyone is asking at the moment uh, is whether the U.S. missile system (THAAD) TAD, um, which they're building at the moment, whether which was backed by Park, whether that will still go ahead under under a liberal government, because they've been they've been less enthusiastic about about citing it there. Um, it's a big issue in in Asia because. The Chinese don't like this missile system because they believe it will be used against their against their weapons. Um, obviously, the North Koreans don't like it. Uh, the Japanese have been very much in favor of, of pushed it. Um, so it's a very contentious issue. So people are looking very closely to see whether a new government might mean a change in approach to America. But South Korea is very heavily dependent on 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 the U.S. for its um, for its defense because. Um, because North Korea is particularly belligerent at the moment. 
Um, and then China is so angry about the THAAD system that they've in, they've introduced a kind of a boycott and a de facto boycott of many of the goods uh, from the Lotta Group, uh, another one of the Chebol industrial conglomerates. They've introduced a sort of a boycott there. We've seen tour groups cancelled, things like that. There's a lot of pressure from China as well. So a new government will have to deal with these issues, um, particularly an, an angry China at the moment. And this is where the, geo, the geopolitics of the situation are going to be very interesting to see how they actually deal with this, because the Americans want the TAD system in there. And I think most South Koreans probably do, too. But they're wondering whether it's worth it to anger China so much uh, to have the system in there. And the opposition in favours talks uh, with North Korea. That's right. I mean, they, they have a much less hard, hard line approach than, than Park did. Um, at the same time, it's kind of a common line from the opposition, though, that, that they want to talk to North Korea because talks at North Korea, um, nobody knows how they will turn out. I mean, they can, it's impossible to predict. Um, but it could be that this is also triggers a new round of dialogue. And, and again, we have to see what, what um, Donald Trump does on this. I mean, he's been very vocal about, about North Korea, as we know, and um, a question of whether he is prepared to sit down and talk to the people or whether uh, to talk to the North Koreans or if he's just going to keep up this line of, uh, of, of, of verbal attack. Thank you very much, Clifford. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Derek Scally, Clifford Coonan, sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Jennifer Ryan. I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.